on this episode of the Evolve Podcast. I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. Just like not everyone should be a dental hygienist, not everyone should be a plumber, not everyone should be a leader of people. That doesn't mean people don't have leadership capability in them. Found the company, set a vision, raise money, lead a project, develop a product. That's different than leading people because you are the founder, because you are the owner, because you mortgaged your home, does not necessarily mean you should be leading people. Welcome to Evolve. My name is Brandon Stover, and I interview purpose-driven founders and leaders to educate, inspire, and empower your success in leaving an impact on the world. The goal here is for the rest of us to ask the world's biggest questions, build startups to solve them, and live fulfilling lives in the process. Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. Today's guest has spent the last 25 years championing teams with the world's best leadership firm, served under the tutorage of Dr. Stephen Covey. He now leads the strategy, development, and publication of Franklin Covey's world-renowned content and best-selling books, including one of the most impactful non-fiction business books in history, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which has sold more than 40 million copies in 40 languages and empowered the transformation of millions of lives worldwide. Although he has held many leadership roles from project coordinator at Disney to the Franklin Covey Company Chief Marketing Officer, he has seen plenty of failure and was even demoted from his first leadership position after only three weeks in the role at Franklin Covey. However, since then, he has been an unfiltered leader thriving in a highly filtered corporate culture. Being a renowned thought leader in the leadership and personal performance space, he's been featured in hundreds of podcasts, webinars, and articles in Entrepreneur, Forbes, Don and Miller's Story Brand Podcast, Rachel Hollis's Rise Podcast, and The One Thing Podcast, and so many more. Additionally, he is a multi-week number one best-selling author of Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow, which has been proclaimed as a new classic on authentic leadership by Seth Godin. He is also the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, and wrote dozens of articles as a leadership columnist for Inc. Magazine. Distributed to more than 5 million business leaders worldwide, his On Leadership podcast features interviews with renowned business titans and thought leaders such as John Maxwell, Dr. Daniel Amen, Ed Milet, Rachel Dave Hollis, and Ryan Holiday. He is also the former host of the iHeartRadio program, Great Life, Great Career. I'm honored to welcome Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership at Franklin Covey, multiple-time best-selling author, and a man who once interviewed himself at two in the morning in his boxers with a whisk, Scott J. Miller. As odd as all that sounds, <laughs> it's actually really true. Brandon, nice to meet you. Thank you for the introduction. No problem. I <laughs> really thank you for being on the show, and I'd actually like to start with that uh, kind of transformative moment for you when you had the interview with Eric Barker. And you were standing in the yes in the room uh, interviewing yeah. yourself. What were you looking at your own life and story and kind of disrupting that in yourself? Well, apparently my boxers, according to you. Let's see. You no, know, it, it happened kind of serendipitously. I I'm privileged to host for Franklin Covey the world's largest leadership podcast weekly called On Leadership with Scott Miller. And as I was preparing for an interview with Viola Davis, the actress, in some preparation, I read from her about the power of knowing your own story. I kind of thought, wow, I've never thought about that, knowing, you know, owning your story. Like, what's my story? And I kind of dismissed it as like, you know, Reiki or yoga or <laughs> things that are for other people, right? right? And then that same week, I was interviewing the famous social scientist, Eric Barker. He wrote a book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. It's a great book. 
And in that interview, he also talked about the power of knowing your own story. I thought, wow, twice in one week. <laughs> What's this idea about knowing your own story? Came home that night, 50 years old. I said to my wife, Stephanie, we're calling in bed. Have you ever told yourself your story? Now, keep in mind, we have three boys, right? Six, eight, and 10. And they all have my personality. So Stephanie, who's a full-time mom, has said, yeah, yeah, I don't care. I'm going to bed. Good luck with you and your story. So I get out of bed at like you know, 10 at night. I'm in my boxer shorts. I go into the kitchen and I pull out a wire whisk as a microphone. And I walk around this very room I'm sitting in right now, my home here in Salt Lake City. And Brandon, for the first time in my life, I told myself my own story out loud. Kind of how I was raised, my parents, my parents' parents, my brother, my own journey, my struggles, my highs, my lows, the things that I had been told to believe about me that were true, that were not true, paths that I had taken by choosing to please other people or fulfill their vision for me. And it was that day at age 50, in a pair of boxer shorts and a wire whisk that I chose to walk around this room in the pitch black, nobody awake, nobody listening and outside, out loud, just for about 10 minutes, repeat to myself my whole journey. It was really powerful kind of just to hear all the things that I'd been through, the mistakes that I'd made, the good decisions that I'd made, the things I was proud of, the things I was ashamed of, the things that I chose to leave behind that night. The, 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 the issues that I've um, struggled with in life. And then it was that day that I decided to go out and get a radio program on iHeartRadio. I started writing four best-selling books and I'm hosting the world's largest podcast. And that day was really liberating for me. I highly, highly recommend that tonight, everybody listening to this podcast with Brandon Stover, go in the kitchen, wear whatever you want, I don't care. Pull out a wooden spoon, wire whisk, spatula, whatever you need to use as a microphone, Larry King style, and tell yourself your story out loud. Nobody else is listening to you because you don't want to you know, um, edit it all. I found it quite empowering. Well, one of the pieces that I'd like to touch on your story is when you worked for Disney and you were asked, actually asked to leave, <laughs> I'm wondering, knowing all that you know now about leadership, why maybe you weren't fit as a leader at that time and what maybe you would say to your younger self? Because I was a jackass. That's why. <laughs> because I was a jerk and I was immature. And I honestly, Brandon, didn't really understand what culture meant in a company, right? What everybody's contribution to culture was. Yeah, I was a classic kind of 23-year-old gossiper, busybody pointing fingers, politicking. I wasn't a bad person. I just was kind of irresponsible. I wasn't managing my corporate credit card well and expense. I just, you know, I was, I was young and immature. To quote one of our presidents, when I was young and immature, I did things that were young and immature, right? <laughs> so for me, Disney was an amazing opportunity. Hometown company from Orlando, learned some great, great business principles around leadership, around quality, around focusing on, you know, kind of the guest experience. A lot of that same quality training served me extremely well as a chief marketing officer later on. I have nothing but positive things to say about the Disney company, my experience there. But quite frankly, I was a bit of a wreck. Not, not a wreck like ethically or on a wreck, you know, in, in like legal ways, just kind of a cultural wreck. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Afterward, you moved and spent 25 years inside Franklin Covey and yeah. under probably arguably one of the most influential people in leadership, Dr. So. Covey. What was it like to work underneath him? 
Well, he was a phenomenal man. Uh, Dr. Covey passed about nine years ago as the result of a head injury from a bicycle accident. He was wearing a helmet in his 80th year of life, but it wasn't tight enough. And he had um, some brain damage. And he had been in declining mental health for some time. So in many ways, he'd argue it was a bit of a blessing. And I mean that not callously, I mean that with respect right. to him. Right. He was the real deal. Dr. Covey wrote a book, as you mentioned, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It sold 40 million copies. It's in its 30th year. He's the namesake of our company, Franklin Covey. And he was a man of impeccable character, uh, of congruence. He, he was a model, he was a light, not a judge, not a critic. He was very friendly and kind. He was a man of great principles and character. We, of course, are from a different religious backgrounds, but I really admire his commitment to his faith and his desire to kind of fulfill what he thought his mission was in life. Taught me a lot. And, you know, he just was the real deal. You know, oftentimes in life, you respect people and you realize, you know what, they were having affairs with their assistants, right? Or this week we hear about all of the, you know, the issues happening with the Falwell, right? And all that craziness. And, you know, the man walked his talk. That's a, that's great to have such a powerful mentor, you know, going yeah, through your it was, it was a blessing for 15 years. Yeah, me amongst many hundreds of associates in the firm. Yeah. Was it always your dream to kind of work up the corporate ladder and then to a position like that? Wow, what a great question. You know, I started at Franklin Covey 25 years ago as a frontline salesperson, became a sales leader, became the company's first ever chief marketing officer for eight years. By the way, the average tenure for that role is 4.1 years in the mm. US. I doubled it. I'm now the executive vice president of thought leadership, and I've earned some street cred as an author and speaker and host. You know, my path was always pretty deliberate. I thought I wanted to be the CEO of a company. And so I knew that from research, you know, if you want to be the CEO, you kind of need to be in the executive C-suite. You probably need to own sales, product development, marketing operations, supply chain, have some international experience. So I tended to work my way up pretty deliberately in the ladder. And I'm not going to be the CEO. In fact, I'll probably leave the firm at some point on great terms. And I'll be a contractor or consultant. And I'll go and build my own thought leadership and books and authors. So I think I think I was very deliberate in friending up. It's mm. a career strategy I highly recommend. I have always associated myself with people who are smarter than me, more educated, more cultured, wealthier, more successful. I can learn from them. And in my career, I always associated myself with someone rung up so I can learn from them and they guided me up. And I'm trying to do the same by pulling people up behind me as well. I'm a pretty deliberate person. Some might call me maniacal, for sure. <laughs> But I think if you know me well enough to know that I may be pulling on somebody's coattails, but somebody's pulling on mine well, and we're all mm. leading each other up, if you will. Well, I'm about half your age in a different generation. In How a insulting. <laughs> <laughs> in a time of like massive uncertainty. So I'm wondering, just from a different perspective, I think your principles speak to, you know, it's universal. It goes across yep. all time. But what do you think for a younger generation how best to navigate their career? Well, I think it depends on what your career looks like. I read a book a few months ago and I interviewed the author, David Epstein. He wrote an amazing book that I highly recommend called Range, R-A-N-G-E. And in this book, David Epstein talks about the difference between being a generalist and being a specialist. Mm. And that, you know, a lot of us early in our careers, we see people be specialists, right? They decide to get a medical degree, be a chemical engineer or becomes you know, a Six Sigma black belt or an accountant. 
And for those people, those career paths work very well for them. Kind of once a specialist, always a specialist. I don't know a lot of commercial airline pilots or anesthesiologists that are changing careers midterm, right? right. Kind of once an anesthesiologist, always an anesthesiologist. And then there's all the rest of us that are generalists. We're in sales, we're in marketing, we're in project management, we're in leadership, we're communication. We're not quite sure what it is we're doing, right? But we're kind of, you know, stumbling along in our 20s and 30s, kind of jealous of those who are specialists, right? The engineer, the lawyer, the doctor. And so I would, I would argue is, are you a specialist or are you a generalist? If you're a specialist, great for you. You're going to be very clear in life on your path. You're going to always know your path. If you're a generalist, you're going to be jealous of the specialist. You're going to wish you had that certainty, that trajectory, that confidence, and that security. But don't let that jealousy eclipse your ability to aggregate knowledge and skills. Because in your 20s and 30s, when you're paying off your student loans at a slower rate than the specialist, maybe, you will be assimilating immense amounts of information. You'll be making mistakes. You'll have successes. You'll try different careers. And I think, Brandon, sometime in your 40s, when it'll all start to come together, right? You'll start to realize, what am I? You'll care less about your title at a dinner party and you'll be experimenting. So my advice early on is, you know, be comfortable with being a specialist or being a generalist. And if you are a generalist, which the vast majority of us kind of are these days, right? Increasingly so, right? right? Brain, creative types, learning different things, trying different things, not trying to be a a 25-year veteran at Exxon or whatever it is. Be comfortable with the rocky journey that is the generalist because you will come into your full. You will gain that confidence skill. Late 30s, 40s. For me, it was late 40s. I'm 52 now. And I think if I had I known someone told me, had someone told me that I was a generalist, I would have said, okay, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I understand I'm not a specialist and I'm okay with that. And I'm going to build my skills. And at some point they're going to pay off. I'm not quite sure when that would have been valuable for me to know 20 years ago. Yeah. I think it's really important to kind of get comfortable with that ambiguity and realize yeah. that there's yeah, no embrace it. Right. Yeah, there's no lost time. Everything that you're learning will eventually build upon each other and those skills yeah. transfer. I don't think I could have articulated that in my 20s or maybe even in 30s. I was kind of driven by fear. I was, you know, had imposter syndrome, always thinking I was going to be exposed as not being competent when I was just as competent as anybody else. We always think people are smarter and better spoken than we are. They're not, right? You're, you know, generally speaking, if you invest in your skills, you're just as competent. Um, I learned that later in life. Mm. Too late. Maybe not too late, but later than I should have. Yeah. Well, many of our listeners are actually first-time founders, early entrepreneurs, and by default, they are first-time leaders. So can you share some of the fears that you had as a first-time leader and maybe the important lessons for those first stepping up? Yeah. Here's the premise. I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. Just like not everyone should be a dental hygienist, not everyone should be a plumber, not everyone should be a leader of people. That doesn't mean people don't have leadership capability in them, found a company, set a vision, raise money, lead a project, develop product. That's different than leading people because you are the founder, because you are the owner, because you mortgaged your home, does not necessarily mean you should be leading people. So. First thing I would encourage your listeners to think about 
when you can scale enough to hire someone that might complement what your talents are, if your talents are not leading people, if your talents are not necessarily developing relationships or building culture, that's okay. Your talents might be as a chief revenue officer, or the chief you know, innovation officer, or as the founder, owner, creator, and chief technology officer. Maybe you hire somebody else to be operations or the chief people officer, or even the CEO, or even the president of people, or something like that, you get the point. I think don't try to be all things to all people. Not everyone should lead people. Leading people takes tremendous amount of courage and diplomacy. It requires you to have high courage conversations, move outside your comfort zone, discuss the undiscussables about communication styles, about tardiness, about collaboration, about personal hygiene, about self-awareness. That's not for everyone. A lot of a lot of a lot of founders, owners don't do that well. And, and you might ask yourself, do I need to learn that skill? Is that is my skill and my precious hours and bandwidth better allocated at invention, creation, and innovation, and ideation, and partnerships, and funding, and growth than you know, nurturing, coaching, and mentoring? Because if you're going to be a leader of people, you have to have a leader's mindset, Brandon. And a leader's mindset means that I achieve results with and through other people. That's profound. An effective leader's mindset is I achieve results with and through other people. And when you believe that mindset, you realize, you know what? I understand the importance of relationships. I need to slow down, be more patient, be more considerate, build capability, build capacity in people. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. I don't need to be the genius. I need to be the genius maker of others, the genius igniter, the genius releaser. That's not easy for everybody. It wasn't for me. I didn't discover that until my mid 40s. <laughs> I'm not sure I should have been a leader of people. I wrecked some mm-hmm. carnage across some cultures, right? Yeah, I think it takes a lot of self awareness, a lot of humility to look back and say, what are my skill sets? And is you know being a leader of people one of those? And if it's not, I think it's highly important that you find you know, somebody that can step into that role and then you can be a partner with them. Or, or, or to compliment, they may not be your skill sets, but is it worth it for you to learn that, right? Is it worth it for you to take the time? Because, you know, I probably could become a mechanical engineer. I mean, probably not. <laughs> Give me some hope. But it would take me a decade. I would struggle with it. I would crater me, but I wouldn't be the best. So it's not worth it for me to be a mechanical engineer, right? It's just too hard, let alone, you know, a web developer, right? Or, or any kind of physician. Most of us could do most things. The question is, does it make you happy? Do you find joy in it? Is it a natural thing that interests you? Do you want to pay the price? Those are good questions to ask yourself. Absolutely. So for the people that maybe don't want to be leaders and maybe want to follow a leader, still yeah. make change in the world, how do they seek out the leader that would best fit with who they want to follow that would lead and take that charge? Dude, that's deep. <laughs> and co- I say a lot of things, Brendan. I think, I think that you know your generation has more choices and options than mine did, right? I mean, my generation, I'm 52. My generation was more kind of the tail end of the traditionalist and baby boomers, right? We valued respect and hierarchy. We valued tenure and loyalty. 
And I don't think, I don't think your generation has worse values. They're just different values, right? Your generation right. values more creativity. You value purpose and mission. You value collaboration. You value disruption. You know, for you, it's no problem having a two or three year career, right? For me, it would have been right. heresy 25 right. years ago. Values aren't good or bad. They're just different. So what you may be looking for in a leader is very different than perhaps what I might be looking for. You might be looking for a variety, right? I might be looking for stability. So I think it's very important as you enter your career to think about, you're going to adopt a lot of the behaviors of your leader, good and mm -hmm. bad. So you want to associate yourself with someone who has all of the good things you want and all of the good things you need, because you may not know what you need. Mm -hmm. You need someone who has high character. You need someone who actually has high standards. It doesn't cut the corners. It doesn't cheat, lie, steal, manipulate, spin, obfuscate, politic, gossip. You may not realize you need those things, but you do because we tend to gravitate to the lowest common denominator of, of, of um, behavior. Right. So make sure that you deliberately think about what I want might right, right now might be different than what I need later on. So be thoughtful about, I might, be, I might want fun. But what I might need is courage. Mm. What I might want is creativity. What I might need is ethics, right? And my leader. So be thoughtful about the type of leader you model yourself with. Don't be afraid to disrupt yourself. Don't be afraid to fire yourself. You might have to move on and move out to you know, try different styles of leadership so you see what works and what doesn't work, what you want to you model your career after, what you don't want to model your career after. I think in your generation, I think the demands of what leaders offer is higher than ever, right? The new generation for good will not tolerate a misogynist or a racist or a belligerent person or a person that is belittling to people. You won't tolerate it. You'll call them out. You'll sue them. You'll quit. Or you'll sit them down and say, you know what? I want to like you, but I don't. <laughs> Either you need to change or I'm going to quit. Those are conversations that your generation will have that might never would have had. Right, absolutely. Well, for the founders that are creating this culture and you know, they often have this lofty vision that they're trying to share. And one of the challenges in your book is to create a vision. So yeah. how do we clearly articulate this vision and clearly articulate yeah. our cultural yeah. values so that our team can rally behind them and you know get over some of the mistakes yeah. that maybe you made along the way? Such a great, insightful question. You know. Dr. Covey said many wise things. One of them was no involvement, no commitment. No involvement, no commitment. Meaning, if you don't involve your team in the creation, the ideation, and the identification of values, behaviors, what are your core guiding principles? What are the tenets? Then they're just yours, thought up in the shower, and now you're forcing <laughs> them on the team. So sit down with your team and say, hey, today, let's talk about how we want to behave around here, how we want to treat each other, how we want to be treated. There's a difference between the golden rule and the platinum rule. The golden mm. rule is, you know, treat each other's how you want to be treated. The platinum rule is treat each other how they want to be treated. Mm. It's, a bit, it's a subtle but profound difference. So this idea of no involvement, no commitment is probably universally good for any founder, creator, upstart leader. At the same time, you probably are going to be thinking up the vision for your company in the shower, right? You're probably right. taking a lot of showers. Why do my best thinking, right? In the morning, my creativity comes out. Right. I'm an early riser. But what I've learned is 
I've been thinking about it for weeks and weeks. I talk in the shower, I role play, and I give my speeches out loud. But because it's perfected in here, doesn't mean it's perfected over there, meaning in their heads, right? So you gotta sit down and you gotta clearly, fundamentally, simply communicate to others what is your vision? Where are we going? What are the steps? What are the pivot points? What are the challenges going to be? What does success look like? Tina, what does success look like for you? James, what does success look like for you? Ibrahim, you get the point. You gotta repeat it over and over again, simply. Then have it, have them repeat it back to you. Tina, repeat back to me what you heard. Because then you'll really know, are they in the same page? Or have they maybe even misinterpreted them? Or innovated something even better? I tell you, I do think leaders can over-communicate. Look at the president, not to get political. I think most people wish the president would talk less, whether you're pro-president or anti-president. Talk less, right? Because he's an expert at everything. He gets into You know what? You can over-communicate. Brevity, simplicity, clarity. Stop all the PowerPoints. Stop all the algorithmic charts. Stop all the longitudinal tables. Put it all away. Sit down. And in how many simple words can you communicate your vision, your strategy, your culture in ways that everybody else viscerally understands it? Be sure one last thought on this. Is this helpful? Yes, um, absolutely. One of our co-founders said something I think is insanely wise. He said, and listen carefully, nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Nearly all, if not all, conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. So if you want to eliminate conflict in your life, mother-in-law, brother, tenant, partner, employee, investor, new hire, clarify, repeat it again, declare your intent, because absent facts, people make stuff up. So speak very simply. I think a key leadership competency is the person that can communicate ideas in 10 words or less with single mm -hmm. syllables, right? I think the person that complicates things with all these flowery words, I have a big vocabulary, I read a lot, but I find that I tend to intimidate people. I don't tend to actually build resonance or loyalty if I get up there and I talk in super, you know, multi-syllabic words. But when I am simple and I'm clear and it's resonant, everybody gets to work executing like wildfire because everybody is super clear on what needs to happen. That's a leadership competency that every founder, upstart owner, should resonate with. One of the biggest challenges that uh, startups face is co-founder conflict. And it's one of the reasons that a lot yeah. of startups will fail. And I yes. think a lot of it comes to unexpressed values on each side. And so I'm curious how you best formulate your values, express it to others, but then also hear them express theirs. Well, it's a multi-part question, right? I think there's a lot of conflict around partners and owners that comes typically from not setting the standard that we are going to, you know, bruise hard and heal fast, right? Bruise hard and heal fast. That we're not going to take things personally. I have your best interest in mind and you have my best interest in mind. I'm going to protect you and you protect me. And occasionally, I might need to protect you from yourself. <laughs> so, you know what? Once a week, let's agree. We're going to grab a coffee and we're going to walk around the complex. We're going to walk around the neighborhood. We're going to walk around a park. 
and we're just going to have a safe zone. We're going to share what's on our mind. We may not use the right words. We may not say it the right way. We're pre-forgiven. Our intent is to help each other. Our intent is to minimize conflict. Our intent is to provide feedback. Our intent is to discuss each other's blind spots. Our intent is to trust each other. And that whatever is said in that block, nobody harbors bad feelings. Nobody blames the other person. We're just, we're here to have an open dialogue. And if you do that every week, you'll have less people losing their, losing their, you know, their, um, or blowing their emotions, right? Or, or, or things being pent up or unexpressed frustrations. That's advice I give to every owners. Schedule it every week, 30 minutes, say what's on your mind, no holding grudges, right? Say it in a respectful way. Ask for, for pre-forgiveness if you say it with the wrong words. Your intent is pure. Doesn't mean you're right. It means you're feeling it, right? We all tend to confuse our emotions, our opinions, and our feelings with facts. Facts are facts, and emotions are emotions. And sometimes we confuse the two. I think when it comes to clarifying your values, which is the other part of your question, I think most people don't know what their values are. Mm-hmm. I think we use this word really free, right? Like, what are your values? I don't know. Liberty, peace, happiness, financial security. Tuesday, what are your values? I don't know. Joy, love. Hap- I mean, Wednesday, what are your values? I don't know. Democracy. Inner peace. Trink- the point is, take the time to sit down and identify your values. Really think them through. Write them down. I know my values. It's an acronym. P-H-I-L-P-A-L, positivity, purpose, health, loyalty, integrity, abundance. I know them very clearly. They're the same as they were eight months ago as they were eight years ago. And I know them in an acronym, P-H-I-L-P-A-L. The first P is actually purpose. Like, what is my purpose here? Health, integrity, loyalty, positivity, abundance, learning. These are my values. And I, and I try to govern my behavior through those values. We tend to use the word values like we throw them around. Don't do that. Be deliberate on them and engage your team on what do we think the values that should govern our behavior, our decision-making, our hiring, our terminations, our promotions, our funding. Be more deliberate with that word would be my advice to your listeners. Mm. That's excellent advice. And I I think this applies to not just a business relationship, but any relationship that you have. My wife and I actually take every Wednesday and do an hour walk together where we basically talk to each other, you know, no hard feelings, whatever's coming up in the relationship, good or bad or whatever, we're going to work through it. And so I think it's it's an important skill that you have to practice with whatever relationship you find most important. You know, it's, it's, it's true. Can I tell you, Brendan, so well said. I think in organizations, we often fall into this trap of thinking that people are our most valuable asset. We hear that a lot, right? People are your most valuable asset. It's not true. People are not an organization's most valuable asset. It is the relationships between those people that are your most valuable asset. It's subtle, but it's profound. If you really value relationships, you slow down. Listen off your own agenda you become more vulnerable you stop trying to ask questions on your own timeline you listen to what it is they're saying with their heart their eyes their soul it sounds hokey but it's not you're going to admit your mistakes more freely 
I think what you said is great about your relationship with your spouse, right? Is easier said than done in an organization it's the same way. Your third challenge in your book is actually to you know, listen. And yeah. so I'd like you to expand on that and maybe speak to some of those stories where maybe you weren't listening as well as you could. Well, that's every story in life, brother. So <laughs> where would I start? Yeah, so in this book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, uh, I list out 30 challenges that every leader faces. These aren't 30 I just made up. These are 30 after 40 years of Franklin Covey working around the world with literally millions of leaders. And the third challenge is called Listen First. And you know, Dr. Covey popularized this as the fifth habit. Habit five was seek first to understand, then to be understood. I think generally as leaders, we are, we're taught to communicate. We're always in persuasion mode, influence mode, selling mode, right? Mission, vision, and values. And these are the goals. Repeat them, repeat them. We're taught to speak from stage and be charismatic and well-spoken. And we're taught to communicate, communicate, communicate. That's true. The flip side is, is if you're talking, you're not listening. And listening is quite selfless. Talking is quite selfish, can be. So I would argue that most of us listen with the intent to respond, not to understand. And when you actually internalize that, that most of us listen with the intent to solve someone's problem, one-up them, duplicate their story, identify with it, you're not listening, you're interrupting. You're one-upping, you're one-besting. And most of us listen, like I said before, on our own agenda, on our own timeline, on our own frame of reference. Oh, I've dated her, here's how you deal with that. Oh, I've worked for him, here's how you solve that. Oh, I've shopped there, here's how you return that. It's well intended, because most of us want to solve people's problems. But the fact of the matter is, most people don't want us to solve their problems. They just want us to validate them and listen. They want to feel understood. So I would say, stop asking less questions. As leaders, we're taught, you know, to peel the onion, right? To get to the root cause. Those are really good skills. But they're not good relationship skills. They're good skills for the P&L. They're good skills for calculating EBITDA or projecting revenue. They're not relationship skills. Stop asking questions because most people will tell you what they need for you to know. And many of us are interrupters. And uh, the linguistic science, Brendan, shows that the reason we tend to interrupt people is because linguistically, psychologically, each of us have a subconscious alarm clock that goes off in our heads when we think the other person should stop talking. And it's different for everybody, right? You think I should talk for one minute and 12 seconds. You think that, you know, Jacinda should talk for 48 seconds. You think your wife should talk for four seconds. You know, we all have this different sense when that alarm clock goes off in our heads, we interject with the interrupt. And the best way to do that is next time someone's talking and you're tempted to interrupt, just close your mouth. Let your upper lips touch your lower lip. Don't grimace. Don't make it noticeable. Just gently let your upper lip touch your lower lip and count to 10. I want everyone listening right now. You can't see me likely, but I want you to very gently put your lips together and we're going to count to 10. That might've been painful for some of you, 
But the linguistic science shows if you can resist interrupting someone during that 10-second period of time, the odds that they will finish their point, stop talking, land their point, or even disclose something especially important or sensitive or intimate that will then give you a cue as to what they need from you next is exponential. This will change your relationships if you can resist the temptation to interrupt and just let people talk for as long as they need to. It's a great leadership competency. I think it uh, really allows you to take a second from the stimulus to your actual response well because because sometimes the things that you were saying are what you feel you need to get off your chest rather than actually, you know, maybe in response to whatever they just said. Or it might be something they said early on in the conversation that elicited an emotional response to you, but wasn't their real point, right? Had you let them finish, they would have used that to talk about something else that they were working on, concerned about, fearful of, excited about. Well, I'd like to talk about one of the other challenges that is in both of your books, and it's to lead through change. And right now we're in COVID, 2020 has been quite an immense change for everyone. How do you best lead through challenging times of change? I think there's a couple of points that are fundamental to leadership as it relates to change. Two in particular. The first is that change is a very emotional process. And, and, and that sounds like, okay, yeah, duh. But no, let that sit a second. Everyone deals with change differently. You know, my parents have been in the same home for 57 years. I've owned three homes in five years. I can sell homes like I can go to restaurants, right? I don't, I mean, it's easy for me. Pack up, move on, make some money. And my parents had rocked their world. My parents literally cannot move out of their home. They're in their 80s. They need to be in a retirement home. They have this large home, all this land. Change rocks their world. My dad worked for a company for 30 years. So I think it's important as a leader to not expect everyone to assimilate, to change as fast as you do. Because oftentimes you've been thinking about it. You've created the change. You were the impetus for the change. And so for you, you may not recognize it, but change has been in your mind for some time, days, weeks, months. And now you're communicating it and you expect everybody to get on it on board when you've been thinking about it for days or months and they're hearing about it for the first time. I'm not saying they need days or months, but be thoughtful around how fast you expect people to accelerate to change adoption as fast as you do. People have different fears. People moved as army brats all their life and now they may love change. They may hate having their office moved, right? Don't infer that people had the same journey as you. Change is a very emotional process. And I mentioned earlier that most change comes with fog and and conflict, right? And absent facts, people do make stuff up. So the more you can clarify, the more you can disclose, the more you can declare your intent, I you know this is why we're doing this. This is my motive. This is my agenda. Will there be some unintended consequences? Probably. Have I thought them all through? Probably not. Am I smart? Yes. Am I human? Yes. Talk to your people. I think the other thing around change, Brandon, is that I think a lot of leaders try to protect their team from change too long. It's well-intended, right? As well, this will this will stop, or this too will pass, or this overture will end. So I'm just going to protect my team so that they don't get impacted. Well, the problem is, is those leaders, although well intended, 
they protect their teams to long term change so that when real change, real change comes like COVID and you're forced to go home, people aren't as mentally agile or as intellectually or emotionally nimble enough to be able to turn on a dime because you've been protecting them from any kind of change for a long time because you love them, you care about them, you want to keep them focused, you want to keep them from distraction. But you know what? Some distraction, some upheaval is good because it tests people's muscles, right? Their intellectual, mental, interpersonal, physical muscles, if you will, in terms of where they're working, what they're doing. So be thoughtful around sometimes your motives, although well-intended, don't serve people well, especially when it comes to change. For the people that are changing themselves right now, you've gone through, you know, different times of change yourself. You've talked about how you kind of get bored after a little bit and need a little bit of a career change. Can you talk about how you've disrupted yourself and, you know, how to do that in a proactive way rather than reacting to something like COVID? Well, so other than my stint at Disney, I've always fired myself. I've always kept myself about a year or two ahead of the proverbial boot. I'm quite politically astute, I think, and I don't tend to believe my own press. I don't live in my own reality. I actually very much live in the reality. So I'm very cognizant of kind of where the winds are headed and when I'm overstaying my my welcome in a certain role. I'm rather ambitious. I like to disrupt myself and learn new skills. I'm not afraid of change. I have three boys and a wife that are dependent upon me financially, so I can't just cavalierly quit my job willy-nilly, right? I mean, I have a lot of not to mention those who work for me and have tied their brand to my brand. So I take that great care and thoughtfulness. I think the best advice I would give is this idea of act or be acted upon. Disrupt yourself or be disrupted. You know, have a plan or be part of someone else's plan. And so all those things have really always kind of you know, haunted me And I love this idea from Harvey McKay, the famous author and speaker, where he said, you know, dig your well before you're thirsty. I always have my well dug before I am thirsty. I'm not caught off guard. Now, I'm not like a neurotic, political, you know, you know, piranha. I'm not always wondering what, I mean, I just, I'm wise, thoughtful. Keep my ear to the ground. And I kind of look around and say, where is this going? Is that where I should be going? Are they zigging? Am I zagging? Are they zigging? Should I be zigging? Right? And, I'm, and, I, and I own the consequences of my behavior. I made some good decisions, made some bad decisions. But generally, here's good advice. Perhaps less advice for the owners and more advice to the employees. Rarely are you in the room when your career is decided for you. <laughs> right? Right. Rarely, as an owner, are you in the room when your funders are talking about renewing or pulling out, right? So I think it's so important to not rest on your laurels. Don't be surprised by anything. Expect the unexpected. Always be willing to not be caught off guard. Always be willing to not be caught off guard. And that has served me well in life. Nothing surprises me. Chippendale dancers could come in here right now, right? My wife could come in in a helicopter. I mean, outrageous <laughs> stuff. But I just, <clears throat> it served me well to just expect the unexpected. By the way, I don't need Chippendale dancers in my house. In case mm. you're my point is, I just am always prepared for the unexpected. And I don't let anybody control my life. I control my life. I'm in charge of my life. Uh, you mentioned you have three boys. 
Um, what are you teaching them about leadership in their own life? Well, they know who I'm voting for for the White House in the fall because they know what I expect out of a leader. I expect high character. I expect an abundance mentality. I expect that leadership is about others and not yourself. I expect that leadership is about apologizing when you're wrong, speaking respectfully to people. Leadership is about not being a know-it-all or the genius on every topic. Leadership is about having the vulnerability to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and be comfortable not being the smartest person in the room. I'm a lifelong Republican, and I'm quite passionate about character, balanced with competence, and I generally find reprehensible leaders that think they are the smartest people, because usually you're not. We're, we're Catholics, so my boys are being raised with a great sense of reverence for their creator, and why they're here, and uncovering their purpose in life, and perhaps even creating their identity for letting somebody else create it for them. Like, what, what is their purpose? Why are they here? So without getting too political, I think we have a great example right now of what leadership looks like and what it does. Hmm. Well said. Well, before I get to my last question, Scott, where can everybody find you and the books? Well, my wife will tell you it's hard not to find me because <laughs> I'm pretty much uh, easy to be Googled, right? You can visit franklincovey.com, subscribe to my leadership podcast for the Franklin Covey company called On Leadership with Scott Miller. I'd love to have any of your guests or listeners that matter, future guests, follow me on LinkedIn, connect to me on LinkedIn. I write a column each week for Inc. Magazine. And I host, like I said, the podcast for Franklin Covey. You can visit managementmess.com. The books are for sale everywhere. I have four books, two that are out, two that are coming out. And there'll be many more books coming out in the Mess to Success series. I'm launching Marketing Mess to brand success next year. And I'm writing now job mess to career success. Next will be communication mess to influence success. Parenting mess to launch success. There'll be a whole series of about 10 mess of success books out over the next seven to eight years. Sounds like you're covering all bases. I got a lot going on, my friend. Very nice. Well, my last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? Gosh, where do you start on that, right? I mean, I think... I think humility is an underrated human competency. Humility is born out of confidence. Confident people can be humble. Humble people collaborate. Humble people listen. Humble people think of third alternatives. Humble people can be friends with people who disagree with them. It's tough. I'm not a very humble person. I work on it all the time. Arrogant people are incapable of showing humility of showing deference. So I think as we all evolve, humility is a underrated virtue, value. And it may look different in different people, but humility means it may not be my time. I might turn the spotlight onto you. I have enough for you as well. There's enough to go around. I think I would land on the word humility as a way for all of us to better evolve and for the world to evolve too. Mm. Wonderful advice, Scott. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and sharing all your wisdom. Brandon, my honor, my pleasure. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for listening and joining the Evolution Revolution. If this episode was impactful for you, then share it with a friend because pushing the world to evolve takes more than just you or I. Until next time, my friends, keep evolving. Keep evolving.